Greetings, dear listeners. We have a treat for you this week. Our friend Glenn Greenwald stopped by the pod to chat with us about the Ukraine war. All three of us come at this from very different perspectives, so as you can imagine, the conversation went in a lot of interesting directions. And if you like what you're hearing, don't forget to leave us a review on your favorite podcast app. Hope you enjoy. This was a good one. Well, Glenn, welcome. I'm excited about this episode because we're doing something we haven't quite done before. I mean, it's part of the wisdom of crowds ethos that we encourage disagreement and we don't try to paper over those disagreements. But I think this might actually be the first time where we're discussing something where our guest might be on the quote unquote opposite side. I'm not sure if that's fair to say. We'll find out. But um, I'm excited to kind of dive into these issues. Obviously, we're going to be talking about uh, Russia and Ukraine and how we as Americans should be responding to it. Um, so maybe just to start, so we're all on the same page. We're two weeks into the invasion. A lot has already happened, obviously. What would you say you're most worried about at this very moment? I mean, what is keeping you up? And obviously, we'll include some of your recent pieces on Substack in the show notes. So readers will have an idea about what you've been arguing. But maybe just what what's consuming you right now? Yeah, well, first of all, it's great to be back on the show. I'm, I'm glad you guys invited me, particularly since, as you said, we definitely have differing perspectives uh, to say the least, on on the war itself, although not necessarily every component of it. And I think asking that question, what is concerning me, is a good way to isolate what those differences are. Obviously, when you look at a war that involves one country invading another, bombing it, shelling it, you know, flattening buildings and neighborhoods, it's horrific to watch. And... Nobody, I think, that's a decent person would say they're happy to see Russia do it. They think it's justified for Russia to invade or anything like that. We can all kind of agree that the war is horrific um, and and devastating to watch, you know, emotionally, morally, and in every other way. But for me, that just doesn't get us very far any more than it got us very far to say, the 9-11 attack was a moral atrocity. It was, but a lot of people who joined in with that correct moral evaluation nonetheless ended up endorsing a variety of false claims and a variety of misguided policies in response. And that's the first thing that is my pre primary concern is what is the role of my own government? What is the role of my own country in this war going to be? And what has it been thus far? I am relieved that Joe Biden and other Western leaders like Boris Johnson and NATO allies seems continuously steady on their insistence that, say, a no-fly zone or anything that would put American troops directly in military confrontation with the Russians is ill-advised and not even something that's on the table. I nonetheless worry that the U.S. is already so heavily involved in Ukraine and has been for so many years and that the emotions around this war are building so rapidly that clearly there's a lot more pressure than there was two weeks ago on, on the U.S. government to do more. And I'm concerned about what that might be. That's the first thing. The second thing is, you know, there's, there's, there's this kind of like prohibition 
on putting this war into context, by which I mean asking why it happened, who was at fault for bringing about the conditions where it took place, um, whether or not we can focus on similar acts that our own government have done. All of this is prohibited. We're only allowed to say it's Putin's fault, Russia's to blame, this war is hideous and, and morally atrocious, and that's it. And the concern that I have about that kind of discourse is I do think it creates this kind of revitalized faith in American militarism, American power, which, um, you know, Shadi, you wrote, I think, a, a very eloquent case for. And in The Atlantic, I've seen other people like Ian Bremmer saying the same thing, that this war is kind of like going to have the opposite effect of the Iraq war, which brought a lot of skepticism about American power, American intelligence community, American claims. This is almost like the opposite, like convincing everybody, no, this time we're on the right side. This shows why American militarism is, is for the good, why it's so needed. And I'm worried about the long-term enduring effects of how people are reacting. In, in terms of the context of how we got here, uh, so on the question of who's at fault, what would you say to that, just so we're, we're clear on that? Well, I, you know, like who's at fault? I mean, you know, it's. I guess I could use the uh, September 11th uh, analogy to, to talk about this. You know, you can say what Al-Qaeda did on September 11th is inexcusable and immoral and nothing justifies it. And that is my view. I nonetheless believed and still believe that it's important to look at what their grievances were, what actually motivated people to fly planes into buildings and to look at the policies that we had engaged in prior to that that created so much animus and hatred and perception of threat in that part of the world. Things that they said, like placing our military on Saudi soil, the sanctions regime that killed 500,000 Iraqis, our kind of unflinching support for Israel, no matter how abusive they are toward Palestinian rights, this constant interference in that part of the world, propping up dictators, removing democratically elected leaders. It's important to understand that that set the conditions that created this climate where hatred levels were so high that people would want to come and, and do that to our shores so that we can understand our enemy, but also to prevent this kind of, you know, continuous provocation on our part of, of increasing anti-American sentiment to that level. I think the same thing you can say is here. There's nothing that justifies an invasion of Ukraine the way that Russia did it. But it's still worth asking whether American and NATO expansion up to the Russian border and then kind of insinuating that Ukraine, the most sensitive area of the Russian border, could actually become part of that NATO expansion, something that for 20 years, not Noam Chomsky only, but U.S. officials, very mainstream ones, including the current director of the CIA, said would be highly provocative, not just to Putin, but to any Russian leader. Constant interference in Ukraine since 2014, at least. We played some role in the change of government. No one can doubt that. The Ukrainians did too, but we were there helping push it and financing it and engineering it. And then since 2014, lots of American involvement right on the Russian border in ways that if they were doing it to us in Mexico or Canada or Cuba or Venezuela, we would obviously find very threatening. And I think it's worth asking that not to suggest Russians were justified, but to understand what role we've been playing in increasing the tensions that caused Russia to feel threatened and encircled and have their national security at risk. 
So, Glenn, you know, I, I, uh, I'll tell you, and we can get into this at length. Um, I, I share a lot of that 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 criticism, and I, I've I've you know warned about myself and my own writing and you know research and stuff that we published in various places. I've always looked for pieces that have warned about us getting into this situation. Um, and I, I, you know, I, I think it's, it's I, even in my last piece, you know, I mean, it's, I, I had a arguing against the no-fly zone, incidentally, um, here on Wisdom of Crowds. I, I, I pointed to the fact that, uh, you know, in fact, uh, insofar as we uh, led the Ukrainians, and I didn't say, perhaps I should have, and the Russians to believe that we had uh, a security commitment or a commitment to their territorial integrity that was uh, going to hold. Uh, we we do have blood on our hands on in that in that regard, because you know I, I think the way we got here was a lot of sort of wishful thinking on the part of parts of government. Um, you know, Ukrainians themselves. I mean, the whole story of NATO enlargement uh, is often told. I think from the American perspective and the the kind of um, policy activists that really wanted this. But, you know, the, the other history is, is a lot of these countries really wanted it. Most for of the sure. countries that came out, they were asking for it. And so part of the, the, the you know, the, the tragedy of all this is that, uh, uh, you know, Ukraine and Georgia felt, in fact, incredibly threatened and worried about this sort of stuff. Yes, you know, we did do democracy promotion. We were doing that. That's something that America does. It's, it's part of its DNA. And so we were leading up to this point. It's important, though, that, of course, we didn't extend those guarantees to Georgia and Ukraine. And, uh, you know, while the NATO expansion argument goes back and forth, I, I think that's important for, for readers to understand that, you know, it's certainly been a tussle, uh, listeners to understand that it's certainly it's been a tussle within, uh, you know, U.S. policy circles about whether or not to. And I think we've ended up in a particularly um, nasty place as a result of this. And I think it's terrible. Uh, but, uh, you know, something I note sometimes in your writing, and I, I, I sort of push you on that, from my perspective, this, the horror of this is that we walked into this. We, you know, I sometimes get a sense when you write about it that, that you know, you're saying that, that almost, you know, that the United States caused it, taking everything I just said, you know, I mean, I, I'm not saying we're not responsible, but that there was a plan of some sort and that this war then, you know, emanates from this kind of, you know, American drive, uh, almost, you know, that it's willed, rather than, you know, uh, this to me has been like a, a slow-moving car wreck, and, you know, it finally, you know, the, the, the cars have collided, and there's blood everywhere, and, uh, you know, I, I, I feel, I, from my perspective, it's, that doesn't, that doesn't absolve anything and policy mistakes in getting here, but it's not, it's not quite, I, I, I always feel like when I'm reading you that, that you're angry about it in a way that as if we are really causing it in a way. Does that make sense? Or can you, can you react to that a little bit? Yeah. Um, you know, I think part of it is, and I, we might have even talked about this the, the first time I was on your show, the way that I try and do journalism comes from how I started to do journalism. You know, I didn't, go work for the New York Times, the Washington Post or NBC News. You know, in 2005, I like felt like there were these grave attacks on civil liberties that very few people were talking about. And the climate in, in the mainstream media was still very much uh, where it was difficult to raise serious criticisms about George Bush and Dick Cheney. There was this kind of still ongoing sense of patriotism. And 
So I started, you know, I just created a blog and started writing based on my perception that there were a lot of things not being talked about that I wanted to shine a light on. And oftentimes I still view that as my role. So, you know, I think we've talked before, I've certainly talked to other shows before, like people say, well, why don't you criticize Trump more? And my argument has always been, well, there's, you know, 90% of the media every day waking you wake up and you can read criticisms of Trump. No one needs me to go and echo that. I'm trying to show things that are being overlooked, not things that are being echoed by everybody. I don't think that does much good. I don't think it's a good use of my journalistic platform. So people say, well, why don't you criticize Russia more? Why don't you talk about Putin's attacks on civil liberties? Or why don't you condemn with greater vehemence his assault on Ukraine? I look around and I see everybody, basically everybody doing that. I mean, it's just a complete consensus, very little dissent. And so I try and use my platform to raise questions that I think are being just run roughshod over, you know, that people don't want to ask. So I don't, you know, if your suggestion is that I harbor a view that the United States had this like grand master plan, this kind of dastardly, sinister, conspiratorial plan to lure Russia into an invasion of Ukraine, I don't, you know, I maybe I used to think of the government that way 10 or 15 years ago when I kind of really started delving into the work of the CIA and the Pentagon and during the war on terror. But I've come to see that the U.S. government is nowhere near that competent. Yeah. You know, so I don't I don't think that that's what it is. I do, though, think that a lot of these actions were designed to be provocative toward Russia. And it was more just an indifference about what the results would be. And I think now that Russia is in Ukraine, I absolutely think that the that American military planners see an opportunity, which is to prolong the war to arm an insurgency, to trap Russia there, to turn Ukraine into Syria or Afghanistan, which is very much contrary to the claim that we're there to help Ukrainians. Obviously, a prolonged insurgency war like in Ukraine, like in Afghanistan or Syria would have the opposite effect. And I, you know, the thing that I guess concerns me the most is, you know, we were warned about this war for weeks, if not months before it was coming. The Russians signaled that they were intent on doing something serious. They had amassed, you know, 200,000 troops on the Ukrainian border. I think there were things the U.S. could have done that the U.S. could have done, the U.S. government could have done and should have done to try and negotiate uh, a way of averting this war, including just saying we're not going to put Ukraine in NATO, have the Ukrainians say, you know, we're going to be neutral, we're not going to be on one side or the other, given how sensitive this part of the border is. And it seemed like there was no interest in doing that. And even at the beginning of the war, when Zelensky wanted to negotiate, seeing what was going to happen to his country... There were lots of reports saying that the Americans were against it. They were telling him they thought it was futile, that it would reward aggression, that he shouldn't do it. So I do think there's a kind of a sense that whether it was by design or just kind of now seized on opportunistically, I think American military planners and NATO leaders are quite happy to see the situation Russia finds itself in. So Demir alluded to this already, that... So you're saying that one possibility was that Biden could have put pressure on the Ukrainians to declare some kind of neutrality. But the issue here is that Ukraine is a democratic country and Ukrainians themselves have preferences. And it seems that um, they've had a preference for some time to lean towards the West. Who are we to go in and tell them that they have to take a national position on something that is dear to them, that is contrary to their own desires and interests. And I think that, um, 
you know, ultimately we're talking about sovereign nations that should be able to choose. They're not just part of Russia's sphere of in influence. And that just because Russia has cared historically about Ukraine, that means that it has veto power over what the Ukrainian government does. That would be, in a sense, imperialist. That, in a sense, would be anti-democratic. It would be negating the will of the Ukrainian people. So what's wrong if a majority of Ukrainians say, no, we want to lean towards the West. We don't want to be officially neutral. This is our will. Yeah, I mean, first of all, there were things the U.S. could have done independent of Ukraine. I mean, Ukraine may want to be in a military alliance where 30 big, powerful Western countries protect it in the event that it would be attacked. I don't blame them for that. I mean, I can get, you know assure you that here in Latin America, where I live, given the history of most of these countries having been attacked and assaulted in various ways in terms of their sovereignty over the years by the United States, including recently, with Honduras and Bolivia and lots of other countries, every one of these countries would love if China or, or Russia came and said, hey, we're, we're, we're willing to give you a guarantee that if the United States in any way starts attacking you or interfering in your politics, we'll consider an attack on ourselves. Who wouldn't want that? That's fantastic. But that doesn't mean that the US and NATO have to give that to everybody who asks. There's a lot of calculations and self-interest involved which is why Ukraine is not yet in NATO. So even if, let's just set aside for the moment, let's assume that you, the position of the Ukrainians was, we want to be in NATO, we want to lean toward the EU, we want to be you know, in your sphere of influence and not theirs, that still leaves the United States and NATO with a lot of room to negotiate and say, we're not going to put them in, in, in NATO because we know how provocative that is. We're not willing to go to fight a war with Russia over Ukraine, which I think is the position of most Western powers and there was no attempt to formalize that as a way of averting this war. The other thing is, I mean, look, yes, in the ideal world, in this nice, perfect world where everybody's sovereignty and democracy is respected and everybody gets to decide for themselves what kind of country they want to be, theoretically, it's true that the Ukrainians should have the right to say whatever they want for themselves and the U.S. shouldn't pressure them. The reality, as you all know, is completely the opposite. We pressure countries all the time using our power and our leverage to do what it is what we want, whether it's contrary to or in in line with what the citizens of those of that country of those countries want, including in Ukraine. I mean, you can go listen to you know the audio of Victoria Nuland and the ambassador to Ukraine, where they basically all but chose the Ukrainian president for the Ukrainians, and. You know, we were involved so much in the governance of Ukraine over the course of many years that, you know, there's a reason why Joe, well, why Burisma paid Joe Biden's son $50,000 a month and not the son of some Ukrainian official because it was a recognition of where the power was inside Ukraine, who could actually do the favors for Burisma, who wielded the, the real power in there. And so, you know, all, and, and like, and, and then the, you know, the other point is, the idea that the United States is governed by a view that it wants to respect the sovereignty and democratic values of other countries, while at the same time, our closest allies in the world are some of the world's worst despots. You know, we arm and prop up and support the Egyptians and the Saudis and the Emiratis and the Qataris and throughout history have done the same. I don't think it's very credible to say that the goal of the United States is to ensure that the sovereignty and democratic will of a small country is protected because so many of our actions run counter to that claim. 
but that's I'm saying the pretext, that, that, but that's not yeah. the reality. But I'm saying that it, it should be a goal. We should aspire to be better on that front. As you know, Glenn, like I, I'm a pretty outspoken critic of our support for repressive regimes in the UAE, Saudi Arabia, and so forth. And But it's precisely because of that position of mine that makes me sensitive to this idea that the U.S. goes in and um, coerces or pressures democratically elected governments. I mean, just because we've been really bad in the Middle East on this doesn't mean we can't be better in Ukraine. But I do want to just touch on, I think, a bigger but wait, but before you go, Before oh, yeah. you go on, just, let me, just, oh. let me just add one quick point about that, which is like, this is a, this is a part of the narrative that has been bothering me, which is, you know, if the if Ukraine was just sort of this like independent democratic country that we kind of just observed from a distance, and then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, Russia invaded and started bombing it and making all sorts of demands of it, and our, we could credibly say, "Hey, there's this democracy over there that deserves to be respected. It shouldn't have big powers interfering and dominating its will that way." But the reality, again, is at least since 2014, with whatever you want to call it, a revolution or coup, whatever you want to label it, there's no doubt that the United States played an important role, which doesn't mean that Ukrainians didn't also, but the United States was heavily involved in that change of government in 2014 and with so many other micromanaging of their their governance since then that it's just not the case that Ukraine is this democratic, sovereign, independent country that isn't controlled by or has interference of other great powers. The United States has been operating in there in all sorts of ways, you know, and the Russians know that and perceive that. And I think that especially with Russiagate over the last five years where hostility between the United States and Russia was deliberately intensified, where it almost became inherently suspect, if not criminal, for an American official to even talk to a Russian official or a diplomat, this kind of, you know, hostility emerged between these two nuclear-armed powers that a lot of us were concerned about with Russiagate and were warning about that I think caused a lot of what the United States was doing in Ukraine to be perceived as even more threatening than it otherwise would have been to Russia absent that scandal that 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 constantly hyped up hostility toward toward moscow i mean point taken but i think there's also an alternative reading of the last 15 years of history and i touched on this in my atlantic piece that russians saw weakness there were times when we were deferential towards russia in key conflicts so first in 2008 with georgia's attack sorry russia's attack on on georgia and that was George W. Bush was president. We didn't really, we didn't respond um, as I think many Georgians may have liked. Um, and so then a few years pass, and then we have Crimea in 2014 and the Syrian intervention where Russia came in and backed Assad's regime in a rather brutal way. And again, there were there were opportunities for the U.S. to push back. We don't have to go into whether or not we, we should have done more on Syria and all of that. But just to say that at different points, successive American presidents decided not to escalate with Russia. They decided not to be overly confrontational. So when I hear this the discourse of the U.S. being provocative towards Russia, maybe parts of it are true, but there's also other parts which is suggests that we've been trying to avoid an overt confrontation for quite some time. And perhaps we've been maybe too, too I don't want to say nice to the Russians, but we've 
we've invited them to view us as weak. And not to kind of use a cliche here, but I think it is fair to say that Putin senses weakness. He senses fecklessness. And his interpretation was that the U.S. was on decline. We didn't have our shit together and that he could get away with a lot of things he wanted to do. Yeah, I think I think you're right about that. Although I wouldn't necessarily define it as fecklessness. I've pointed this before, you know, in 2016, Obama, this was after Crimea, after Georgia, obviously, was, you know, he was in his last year of his presidency and he gave this long, really in-depth interview to Jeffrey Goldberg about what are the underpinnings of his foreign policy. And Jeffrey Goldberg was voicing what a, what a lot of people in both parties in Washington felt, this frustration toward Obama for not having confronted Russia more in Syria, but including in Ukraine, where people wanted Obama to authorize way more, greater amounts of lethal arms to be sent to the Ukrainians, and Obama wasn't willing to do so, and Jeffrey Goldberg was pressing him on this, and Obama said, you know, I guess you can look at this as fecklessness, or you can look at this as just like realism. He said, look, the reality is Ukraine is and always has been and always will be a vital interest to Russia, and it has never been and never will be a vital interest to the United States. We will never go to war with Russia over Ukraine. And therefore, there's just not anything that we can really do to prevent Russia, if they perceive a threat in Ukraine, from from acting. Just like Russia wouldn't, for example, if we perceived a threat in, you know, Venezuela or Peru or a Caribbean nation like Grenada, wouldn't go to war with the United States in what everyone considers to be our region of influence. Um, and I don't know, I, I, I guess the question I have is, do you think Obama was wrong about that? Do you think we should consider Ukraine to be in our sphere of, of in our, a vital interest to American security such that we're willing to fight a war with Russia over it? Can I can I jump in here? Because I, I, I know that Shadi hated that interview a lot or hated Obama <laughs> right. in that interview more than more than perhaps Jeffrey Goldberg. So uh, I'll let Shadi get into that. But I, I just wanted to jump in on, on two points and maybe then I think this could maybe get us talking about this in terms that I want to talk to Shadi about as well. I mean, it's something we go back and forth a lot on. Um, you know, first point, uh, you know, I, I don't want to lose this, uh, but, you know, to your point that what the United States could have done in the run-up to the war about, uh, you know, declaring uh, that um, Ukraine is, you know, not welcome in NATO, basically shutting the, uh, officially shutting the open-door policy of NATO. Um, I, the, the the main, I think, problem with that, we had uh, Samuel Cherup uh, from Rand on, a consummate realist, a real sort of Russia scholar who really, you know, I think shares a lot of, you know, both yours and mine, even though Sam and I actually are, are on different pages or were on different pages in the run up to this. Um, the, 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 the main problem was and actually continues to be, you saw it in Biden's speech where he, he doubled down now on, on NATO's existing borders. The problem with these half promises to Ukraine is that first they set up expectations, I think, but it's also the logic of NATO is that that the NATO alliance itself feels incredibly vulnerable or the, the frontline states feel very vulnerable. So, um, you know, stepping down uh, in front of that kind of buildup of, of, um, of, of forces uh, I think, you know, would have had actual impacts on all of NATO. And I'd argue to you and I've argued to, to Sam uh, that, that, in fact, you know, while we focus on, uh, you know, Russian sort of imperial ambitions, um, you know, uh, 
the arguments you put forth that it's a, a question of threat. Uh, the other, I think, pretty clear ambition of Putin's was, in fact, to he perceived that NATO itself was fragile, and he wanted to, I think, show especially frontline states that it was not reliable. So, I mean, again, from talking to government officials and just sort of the background of it, I'm fairly sure that that, that was a large part of the calculus why, you know, we were happy and Biden went out of his way to, you know, meet and constantly talk to the Russians, but they, they were not willing to take that step. The interesting question is, and you're seeing it now, you know, with the Israelis going in to actually mediate between the Ukrainians and, and, uh, and, and the Russians, uh, it's, you know, the, the deal is, is more or less the same uh, that Putin is offering. He has backed off. It looks like Zelensky may be able to stay in power as long as he basically neutralizes the country, uh, renounces its claims to NATO. What my argument to Sam was always, you know, ultimately, Putin doesn't trust us at all anymore. He thinks we're weak in fact, or that the whole alliance is overstretched and weak. Um, I think he's probably changed his, his calculus since the invasion. But uh, at that point, what he really needed was the Ukrainians to renounce it themselves. And that gets back to that question of, of, of um, you know, uh, of agency that Shadi was pushing you on. And I think is, 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 you know, an important question we'll be thinking about after in the aftermath of this, however it ends up. You know, I mean, Zelensky himself, I think, didn't believe it could happen. Or if it did, it wouldn't be quite as, you know, as big, even though everyone was giving him the intel that it was they were going to drive for Kiev. It was going to be a decapitation strike. He didn't believe it. I personally didn't think Putin would actually go for the whole thing like this. It's that's one thing I didn't count on. Um, but it's still I think it was it really was on the Ukrainians themselves to make that choice. It was the only credible one, quite frankly, that that they could have made. Now, one can say that Zelensky himself, you know, uh, would have been assassinated by, uh, you know, uh, Ukrainian hardliners on this if he had done that. You know, that's that's plausible. So there were all sorts of pressures, which, again, leads to that question of, you know, I think it's a really tragic situation we got ourselves into rather than, you know, a nefarious one. Even if I grant you most of the, the stuff that's saying all the mistakes we made leading up to it. But this gets to the other part now that, that you know, I, I in my notes here is listening to you talk. You know, you bring up Burisma, you, you talk about uh, uh, the corruption that's endemic there, the very imperfect nature of, of, of Ukrainian democracy. And, you know, I, I would be the last person to deny that the United States was not involved there. The part where the way you characterize it, though, uh, is, is where I get uncomfortable because I, I, I generally am uncomfortable with the whole democracy promotion project, the whole overarching uh, bureaucracy that we have surrounding it. But at the same time, I recognize it's, it's sort of, it's also part and parcel of what America is. I think Shadi's much more comfortable with it. But really, you know, the, the more benign, and again, in my frame, you know, walking into a buzzsaw in slow motion, this is just what we do. And yeah, sure, Toria Newland was running around, running her mouth. She, she likes running her mouth. She's loud. Um, and yes, of course, we were working with civil society and helping uh, political powers get in. And of course, it was in our interest to promote democracy. Um, and, and the democracy that we stood up was absolutely imperfect. Ukraine is far from a, uh, you know, uh, like uh, something, you know, it's far from, ha before the war, it had a lot of problems, obviously. Um, the thing about, I think the way I would characterize America is, is it, it blunders into this kind of empire, but it's a different kind of empire, right? I mean, it's an empire based on these kinds of, you know, again, a, a bureaucratic apparatus that is, uh, all about, uh, uh, 
spreading democracy uh, and instilling it and then like building it. Um, and uh, I mean, I guess the question, you know, my, you know, to you, Glenn, also to Shadi is, I mean, is that something we should think about going forward? Like, is that, is that sort of uh, bureaucracy that, that creates these situations uh, a liability? I'm not sure we can do anything about it. I think it's just sort of so built into sort of the American psyche uh, that, you know, this is just how we do things. And then we end up with messes at the limit here. But again, you know, I, I wanted to sort of push back on this idea that, that you know, that, that Ukraine was, a, was an American puppet state. Um, obviously, you know, there was a, there's a desire for, for economic reasons. You know, we represent prosperity in a lot of ways. The European Union represents prosperity as well. They blunder into all sorts of stuff with their idealism about these things. Also, in 2014, they did as well, because let's not forget, that wasn't about NATO. That was about signing an association agreement with the European Union. Um, and, and, you know, it's this sort of idea that history is moving this way and we nudge it forward. And sure, perceptions are different on the other side. Sure, it's reckless. But do you know what I mean? It's I, where I really want to push back on is this idea that wh whereas perceptions, for whatever reason, and I'm happy to talk about like Russian perceptions and sort of the, the scheme of Putin's rise and fall and, and how we get there. It's just a lot less nefarious, I feel like, than you just laid it out, Glenn, in, in some of your, uh, in, in your, in your exposition, your last questions. Yeah, I mean, look, there's a lot to, to dig into there, and there's several points I want to address. But before I do, just to clarify your, your position, your argument, um, this, this word blunders always bothers me because it always is seemingly designed to suggest that when the United States goes places and blows things up and kills civilians and invades countries and, you know, bombs all kinds of structures that it's doing it almost like, you know, it's kind of like hapless, well-intentioned giant that just sort of steps on its own toes sometimes and kind of falls down, but there's no, you know, morally sanctionable uh, motive behind it. It's just kind of like a happy-go-lucky error that we make, like, oh, we just blundered. Um, and this kind of language of moral evil is, is reserved for the countries that are adverse to us. And I guess the question I have for you is, do you, when you look at what the Russians are doing in Ukraine, do you think there are things that they're doing that are different in kind or worse in kind than what the United States did in, say, Iraq? Look, uh, I mean... This is this is where I sort of I feel like I'm insulated from this because, because I really avoid moral language in, in a lot of this stuff. Um, and this is where Shadi and I really, you know, especially over this one, I think we've been arguing back and forth. And that's why I think the two of you arguing on the 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 moral part is more interesting. I, I, I can give you a a many layered uh, analysis of how the Russians have found themselves into this. They blundered into it themselves. You know, it's not yeah. like this is any kind of brilliant move by Putin's and clearly it looks like it's quite a catastrophic potentially quite a ca catastrophic move for Putin at this point um, and you know uh, I think there's plenty to talk about of you know how we have reacted to this right now whether we're boxing ourselves into a, a really nasty situation I think there's plenty to, to unpack there but but uh, you know from my perspective um, it's it's I, I I fall back on this question of trying to do analysis once removed on this and 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 really having more of like an appreciation of the sort of the, the tragic nature the tragic recurring nature of all of this um rather than saying that that uh as as i i feel sometimes you 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 shade into is this idea that 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 you know uh that even the united states you know has a kind of uh 
a plan around it. And again, you know, we can we can unpack individual things, but that's where I fall back on that. Um, I, 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 I think I can very comfortably say that what the Russians are doing in Ukraine uh, is completely barbarous, and we have waged some very barbarous wars, and I don't feel any compunction about saying that. And I don't think, in fact, that is uh, that traps me in, in, in this kind of equivalence, largely because um, at the limits, you know, uh, uh, I think there are all these other qualifying things like like what I was saying that that basically uh, how how the United States blunders into a lot of this stuff and you know I'll leave the Middle East to to you and Shadi I, I do a lot on Russia and, and on Ukraine and you know Europe um, to me to me a lot of the European stuff the sort of post Cold War stuff is more based on a kind of idealism run grossly amok that doesn't that doesn't appreciate the role of of potential violence and conflict that really believes in a kind of better world that's possible out there and is quite frankly not worried enough about it and quite frankly not cynical enough about how the world works. That's where I come from this. And that's how I criticize the United States, that 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 we're idiots in a lot of ways on this, largely because we believe in things that 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 uh, that we get carried away with. So that's my criticism. So I I would I disagree with Demir there. <laughs> so I'll, I'll just offer up a different perspective on equivalency. Um, and I, I know, Glenn, that you'll disagree quite strongly with what I'm about to say, but I think it'll be interesting. Um, so, you know, I the Iraq War, I think that we all agree here was a disaster and it was one of the worst, you know, one of the worst moments in American foreign policy. Um, you know, I, my, my early days being political post 9-11 were, in, you know, at participating in the anti-war movement and seeing this as an incredibly stupid and dangerous thing. It happened. And um, so I think, but there is a key difference in the sense that, first of all, um, you, Russia is an authoritarian regime. The U.S., is not, and then the target, Saddam, authoritarian, Ukraine, somewhat democratic. There are important differences that doesn't, I think, excuse anything the U.S. does. I want to, I want to be clear on that. But to kind of put them side by side and say one equals one, and they're both equally bad, I think misses some really important nuances. I mean, we. Um, I don't think American policymakers, as bad as they are and have been in various instances, wake up in the morning and think, oh, we want to eliminate the Iraqi people. We don't want, like, there isn't, intent matters. Um, outcomes can be similar in terms of lives lost, and one might argue that those on the receiving end of American bombs don't care about intent. I I care about intent for a variety of reasons, one of them you know, is that um, morality doesn't really exist without intentions. We have to know why people do what they do and what motivates them. And that does matter. Um, so I just don't see anything comparable where we go, we, we invade a country and try to conquer it. And then basically try to perhaps occupy it indefinitely. Now, there was an occupation in Iraq, of course, but we did then pass on control to a democratically elected government that became pretty anti-American in some ways, pro-Iran in other ways. So clearly, 
the idea that Iraq was a solid member of an American empire and they were just a puppet state that we used to do whatever we wanted to do. I just don't think that holds. Um, and um, and then also, uh, you know, Saddam, you know, so not to go into the whole Saddam thing, but the fact that Saddam was a brutal dictator is different than what Ukraine is, you know, as I mentioned earlier. Anyway, those are just maybe a couple points I would raise. Um, I think you'll disagree, but I'm curious how you would respond to that. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, look, motives are very difficult to discern. They're things you can never prove with certainty. We have a hard enough time, at least in my experience, discerning our own motives when we do certain things. Generally, our motives are very mixed. We often deceive ourselves about what our real motives are. We make them more noble. Trying to discern what other people's motives are, even more difficult, and then trying to characterize the motives of, you know, an entire government or an institution even more difficult still. What I think is that, first of all, we all are tribal beings, no matter how rational we try and be, right? This this tribalism is embedded with us over millennia. It's just naturally how we see the world. And so I think we all have a tendency to believe that our side, that our tribe is better. We're just taught that, we're taught to see the world through the prism of our side. And so I think it's just natural to assume that when we see our government using the same weapons, cluster bombs and thermobaric thermo uh, bombs and, you know, killings of civilians and calling our attack on Iraq shock and awe, you know, designed to just like unleash so much firepower that it terrorizes not just the military, but the entire country into submission so there wouldn't be an insurgency. I think it's very easy to get ourselves to believe that even though it looks like what the Russians are doing, we have the good motives and their motives are somehow more malicious. I have no doubt that the Russians believe the opposite about what their government is doing, at least, you know, a lot of them. Obviously, there's dissent in, on both sides. They believe what's really going on in Ukraine is they're genuinely right-wing extremists, Nazis, people who are brutalizing the Russian-speaking minorities in eastern Ukraine. They believe that, you know, the U.S. is there building chemical labs and threatening them and that it's actually just a war of self-defense in a way that nobody could say the war in Iraq was. No one could say that Iraq was ever threatening the United States. So I think you could make that case the, the other way. There's a huge difference, a huge difference between attacking a country right on your border where the world's greatest superpower is involved in all kinds of ways versus packing up an entire army and going all the way across the world and invading and attacking a country that no one could credibly suggest was actually threatening to you. I mean, you could make that opposite case that if anything, there's a greater self-defense argument for what Russia is doing in Ukraine than what the U.S. did in Iraq or Yemen with the Saudis or Libya with um, NATO or what happened in Afghanistan. So I think ultimately you just have to look at the actions. And this is part of what's bothering me is, you know, if you look at all the reasons we're supposed to be so aghast at what the Russians are doing, they use cluster bombs, they use these radiation bombs today, these kind of bombs that vaporize people, they're killing civilians. These are all things the United States has done. And that's not what aboutism or it's not a way of, of justifying what Russia has done. It's a way of saying the discourse to the extent that it convinces Americans to believe that what Russia is doing is so uniquely and unprecedentedly evil that we should be enraged like no 
other war should enrage us, I think is a form of dangerous propaganda because it lets us believe that we are superior to what the Russians are doing. And I think it's a very hard case to make that, at least in many of those cases, we have been. And then the other issue, you know, I, I alluded to this before, is yes, it's true that in the case of Iraq, we went to war against a government that was savage and brutal in, in Saddam Hussein. But I do not believe, and, and you know, again, I mean, motives are difficult, but one of the ways you can know somebody's motives is you can, if you want to make an assertion about what motivates somebody in a particular case, you look at their other actions and see whether it's consistent with that motivation. I mean, the United States has supported some of the most wretched, murderous despots, you know, ever to plague the 20th century and into the 21st century. Uh, just General Suharto alone in Indonesia that was one of the United States' closest allies for decades that the United States helped install and build up and throughout Latin America and obviously in the Middle East. If you look at who the United States supports and what the United States is willing not just to tolerate but to root for and build up and empower, and it's incredibly difficult to make the argument that when we say that we're motivated in our wars by a desire to spread freedom and democracy, that's actually our real motive. I don't think our actions permit any conclusion other than we don't care if a country is democratic or autocratic as long as they're serving our interests. Um, but you and I about- can care, though. I mean, so putting aside the U.S. government, when we make our own moral calculus, you and I, that should matter to us. I don't think that it's morally justifiable for the United States to go and invade and destroy a country of 26 million people or you know, 70 million people in the case of Iran if we were to do that because the government is autocratic. I don't think that makes it any more justifiable. I don't look at that. I don't see that as a just cause for war. And I don't think the UN Charter or international law or the principles of Nuremberg do either. Those are aggressive wars, which don't become any better because the government that happens to be one that we want to overthrow is less democratic than others. It's not a reason to to go to war at all. And I don't think it makes it the um, more justifiable morally. I also, you know, just on the question of Ukrainian agency and all of that, you know, in war, I think we can all agree it's almost impossible to know what has really happened, especially when we're three weeks in. It takes months, if not years, to figure it out fully. So, it, you know, if it's true that we wanted the Ukrainians to agree to neutralize themselves and to vow that they would not be in NATO, they would not be in the EU, they would be a neutralized country as a way of averting war, and the Ukrainians were adamant that they wouldn't want that, that they weren't willing to do that. They'd rather risk war with Russia than give those concessions. You know, that's one that's one world where you can talk about. I'm not convinced that was true. Like I said, there are story, there are report there is reporting from, you know, major Western outlets that Zelensky was eager to sit down and make concessions with the Russians early on, and the United States was adamant that he not do so. And of course, if you're Zelensky, you're going to not necessarily mindlessly obey, but certainly take into account what the country most important to your self-defense is 
urging you to do. I mean, we, of course, have a lot of influence over Zelensky that we've been using forever. And so I don't know that that's what happened. It could very well be the case that they were actually willing to do that. And it was our pressure that prevented that agreement from being reached. I don't think we showed much of an interest in forging a diplomatic agreement that could have averted the war. And that's one of the things that's bothering me the most when we talk about U.S. motives. And then just on the question of Ukrainian democracy, you know, um, Demir was saying, look, it's corrupt and it's an imperfect democracy. Of course, that's true. No democracy is perfect. American democracy is full of all kinds of corruption. You know, you can even people and, and that people do like scholars and the like call into question how much of a democracy are we really like every four years we go and vote. But, you know, in terms of who actually wields power, obviously oligarchical wealth and billionaires and large corporations wield enormous amounts of power in Washington calling into question how democratic our processes that leads to laws and regulatory enforcement. It's not that Ukrainian democracy is imperfect. To me, the issue is, and why I brought up the payments of Burisma to Hunter Biden and Victoria Nuland's, I'm not sure it was just talk. It sounded a lot like they were picking the Ukrainian president and the person they settled on became the Ukrainian president. And obviously, if you're a country that's sending huge amounts of lethal weapons into a country and all kinds of financial aid, of course you have all kinds of influence in that country. It's not that Ukrainian democracy is imperfect. It's the United States is playing a major role in pushing and shaping and molding and, and influencing and to some extent dictating you know, what was happening inside Ukraine to, on to the level of like Joe Biden demanding that a particular prosecutor be fired. You know, when you're picking prosecutors for another country based on the money that you're giving them and the weapons you're providing and the influence that you wield, it's very hard to say that that country is this kind of sovereign, independent state free of external influence. And I think the Russians looked over their border and saw how much the United States was involved in Ukraine and and saw it the same way as if we looked over the border and saw the Russians inside Mexico, you know, flooding Mexico with lethal arms to fight us and, you know, forming a military alliance and vowing to put Mexico in it or suggesting that we might and micromanaging Mexico. Of course, Washington would view that as deeply threatening and provocative. We almost had a nuclear war with, with Russia because Cuba, the sovereign government of Cuba, invited Russia or requested Russia play, place nuclear weapons on Cuban soil to deter another attack. And we didn't say, oh, look, Cuba's a, a sovereign country. They can invite another sovereign country to put weapons on their soil if they want. We said, we won't tolerate that. That's too close to our border. We have we have the right to, to be very aggressive because that's such a threat to us. And I think, you know, it may not be the same as putting nuclear weapons on the soil rights outside of your border. But, you know, yesterday, Victoria Nuland acknowledged bizarrely in that Senate testimony that Ukraine does have what she called biological research facilities, which are, in her words, dangerous enough to be very worried that they would fall into Russian hands. So when you combine all these different ways that we're in Ukraine, we're operating in Ukraine, NATO is right around it, we're deploying anti-missile systems in Eastern Europe, at first claiming it was to protect Eastern Europe against Iran, when of course it was aimed at Russia as well. I think that there's a lot of reasons to say not Ukrainian democracy is imperfect, but it, in some sense, it's kind of illusory. Shadi, do you want to go or, or do you want me to, to go my amoral way? Do you want more moral <laughs> arguments here? Okay, well, there's just 
well, this I don't know if this is moral or not. I think that so I'm I'm trying to get my head around where some of the fundamental divides are, not on some of the specifics or some of the policy options, but on like our respective worldviews. And I think that, I mean, one part of it is it's a binary choice in the sense that in the future, we're either going to have a more multipolar world where Russia and China are increasingly powerful and perhaps even dominant in in some in, in some of their own surrounding regions and are more competitive with us, as we all know, or one in which the U.S. maintains and its Western allies in, in Europe maintains some kind of edge. And there is, I don't, you know, I don't love using this word because usually it has a pejorative connotation, but a world where there is some American hegemony, especially um, in Europe through institutions like NATO and so forth, that that's the choice that I think will be ahead of us in the coming decades. Now, in an alternative universe, we might have, we could maybe imagine a more a more just America that acts more morally abroad, that isn't as hypocritical, that we can be more proud of, so on and so forth. That U.S. does not exist. It probably won't exist, despite, you know, whatever our efforts may be to try to change it for the better. If that is the choice that is ahead of us, I mean, part of me was a thing, Glenn, that you would you would still prefer that the U.S. would win out in that if, if there has to be a choice, because ultimately there aren't going to be compromises when it comes to dominance. It's going to be it's going to be zero sum on certain issues. There's no way that China is going to rise and rise and become more powerful, more hegemonic. And then the U.S. will stay as hegemonic as it currently, as it has been for for years and decades. So sure. something has to give there. Yeah, Shadi, you're, you're stealing my thunder. That's where that, but that's that, that's the amoral case. Wait, that's I, that's amoral. Yeah, 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 for sure. But let me <laughs> let me just before before we get into that, I I, I, I do want to I mean ask sort of a, a, a variant of that question, Glenn. Um, but just to to you know make the case uh, again for uh, Ukrainian. Uh, sovereignty, if you will. And I'll make it narrowly because you're right. You know, uh, this will be, I mean, I was talking to my colleagues and friends as this was going on. I mean, we're still trying to figure out what happened in the Cuban Missile Crisis. There's still books being written about it. This is a, a the how we, we ended up here is one of the most complex phenomenon. Historically, the so many actors were sending so many signals around that time that it's very hard to really pin down um, what exactly happened. So I take your point uh, about, you know, some of these things that were reported that what kind of signals were being sent to Zelensky. Let me give you my case for why I think that, 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 um, uh, you know, this, that, that how to minimize that, that NATO thing. It's kind of a simple case is, is basically, um, it's been clear ever since the invasion, um, that in fact, uh, the, the cavalry is not coming. It's been made clear in the last week that the cavalry is not coming. Uh, the no-fly zone, I mean, again, I share a lot of your concerns about uh, public opinion, emotionalism, leading us into a situation that really could be catastrophic. Like I said, I, I wrote a long piece on this, trying to argue it, I think, in a, as cold and as, as credible to the other side uh, as possible to try and sort of make the case against it. Um, but the fact is, is that the Ukrainians are still fighting, and they're fighting with 
not the kind of weapons that they would need to prevail. Even though, you know, I think the information space right now is suffused with stories that the Ukrainians are doing well. If you read uh, the, the, uh, the analysis coming out of the Pentagon, it's not actually that rosy a picture. And I think the, the Russians are still likely to do a lot. And you see it in these reports that are coming out in the negotiations, especially with the Israelis going over there, is that, like I said, the, some of the demands have gone down, but they're mostly still in place. And Zelensky, I mean, I think he really does face a choice, as we're recording right now, whether he will give in or not. That tells me, in any case, that he, as the elected leader, uh, you know, take all your caveats uh, for what they are, you know, and, and grant most of them about the imperfections and American involvement in it, still begs the question for me, uh, you know, whether you think democracy promotion itself is, in, is, a, is a really bad policy thing. I happen to think that it, it leads us into these sorts of things. I know you don't like blunder, but I, I think that's, it's, it's an accurate way to talk about it. Um, but the fact that the Ukrainians are still fighting, um, even with, you know, I mean, we're, we're sending arms there, but it's not, it's not the kind of stuff that, that they'd most like or most want, uh, I think tells us something about that, that, that uh, you know, the, the uh, call it the sovereignty or the, the independence of it. Um, the, the, the way I'd phrase Shadi's question, um, and, you know, feel free to uh, engage in it on, you know, on moral terms, but for me, from my analytical standpoint looking at it, is that uh, the war as it is right now has actually ruptured a lot. Uh, we are uh, we're at, on the other side of something that existed before where all sorts of decisions were taken that have gotten us here. Um, what next? And that's how I would frame and ask you to sort of think about with us what, what Chadi was saying, imagine worlds you know, with Russia and China versus the United States. Um, you know, you can put it in, in these sorts of terms like what side are you on, et cetera. But, but I'd even get more granular on it and say, what should we be doing now? Yeah, um, that, you know, I, I, th I do think that ultimately is the most important question. And uh, I don't, you know, it's part of why I've kind of shied away from the kind of orgy of moral outrage about Putin and Russia, because as I said at the beginning, I don't think it takes us very far. Namely, it doesn't take us at all to the, the question that you just posed. The One of the things that struck me in what you just said is that the we are obviously providing some support, some weapons to Ukraine, but not, as you said, the level of weapons they would need to win. Instead, more or less, the kind of level of provision of weapons that enables them to prevent the Russians from just running roughshod over them and taking over the entire country quickly. In other words, kind of prolonging the war. And that gets back to the concern that I have that the model that I feel like we're pursuing intentionally or otherwise, but the model nonetheless that is is what we're headed toward is the same one that the US and NATO used against Russia in Afghanistan in, in the 1980s and, and, and more so in in Syria, you know, uh, under President Obama, I mean, that was the critique of people like Shadi and others, and the one that you referenced as well. This idea that Obama let the CIA do just enough to help the Syrian rebels 
kind of prolonged the war, but never did enough to let them win. He kind of tied the CIA's hand behind its back. He limited what the U.S. government was willing to provide to the people fighting against Bashar al-Assad. And what it did was it, it, it kept the war going for years, destroyed the entire country, but ultimately Assad is still there. It kind of was in a lot of ways the worst of all worlds. And, you know, I think that what's happening is the U.S. and and Western leaders are rightly steadfast, thankfully, in their determination not to allow the media and the public, which is understandably emotional about what they're watching, to push them to do things that are clearly ill-advised, like a no-fly zone or things like that. But they also are boxed in in the sense that they can't do nothing, because if they do nothing, given how engaged people are with this war, they're, they're going to get mauled from a, a public opinion perspective. And so they're kind of in that same middle ground that is what led to Syria. And I, that, I, know, from, I, you know, I know it's more emotionally cathartic to watch the Ukrainians have weapons to defend themselves instead of sitting there like sitting ducks be, being defenseless. But from a rational perspective, if Russia ends up winning the war anyway, and it takes, you know, a year or 18 months instead of, you know, a month, and Russia ends up flattening cities and getting more brutal and even more reckless with civilian, I don't see how that helps Ukrainians, even though it kind of makes us feel like we're being more purposeful. The thing about, you know, the Cuban Missile Crisis, just quickly, is you're absolutely right. It's incredibly complex. I've read books on it. I've read, you know, endless essays on it. I've watched people be interviewed on it. I've watched documentaries on it. And there's, you're right. There's no one kind of account that is the definitive account that emerged and maybe there never will be. But I do think what most people agree on is that what made it so dangerous and what almost brought us to the brink of, you know, a nuclear, nuclear catastrophe, if not annihilation, was the fact that when you get into this pattern where two countries that are so armed to the teeth with nuclear weapons with so little trust for one another are on opposite sides of a war, even trying to keep their distance, miscommunication and misperception very easily can get created. Lots of wars have been escalated due to miscommunication and misperception, not intention. But when you're talking about nuclear armed powers, the danger can be cataclysmic. And that's one of the things I most worry about. Um, I think the question of where we're going to be going forward with China and Russia and a multipolar world, I mean, I see that as inevitable. There's no stopping Chinese growth. I think, you know, for all the talk about how the international community is united and isolating Russia, the reality is if you look at, you know, who abstained, on the UN resolution, which was as powerful of a statement almost as those who voted no. You're talking about China and India, the two most populous countries on the planet. Pakistan, which is, you know, number five. Um, Bangladesh, which is, you know, seven or eight. And a bunch of other countries in in the top 20 that were eager to kind of sit on the sideline and, and, and not, um, you know, jump in with the Western consensus. I think that presages the fact that whether we want it or not, we are headed toward a multipolar world where these countries are going to be a lot more powerful. And there's we're kind of coming to the end of, of the U.S. as a hege hegemonic force or kind of the world's sole, sole superpower, whether we want that um, or not. And 
you know, again, the worry that I have from all of this discourse and the way that people are so engaged in this war and so pumped up about the moral certainty that they're being fed and the kind of nobility of the U.S. role is, I feel like it's rejuvenating this very healthy skepticism that not just Iraq, but also Vietnam generated toward the use of American power. I think Shadi seems to think that's a good thing that we've been too resistant about it in the past, kind of the narrative that he defended from Putin's perspective that we seemed weak or feckless because of that. I actually find that skepticism, that restraint to be very important. And I really worry that it's being eroded away. I guess Shadi and I agree on on that, that that's where we're <laughs> headed and kind of disagree on whether it's good or bad. Uh, so so let me let me just make a a, a couple of points on that. Um, I think the the you know if you want to if you want to talk about uh, sort of Syria and what the sort of you know effective policy in Syria and then compare it to the effective policy in in Ukraine as it seems to be shaping up, I think you've got a point. I think there's a there's a parallel there. Uh, and I just want to also say, I mean, I share all your concerns about, you know, nuclear powers and miscalculation in the Cuban Missile Crisis. That's why I've been adamantly against the no-fly zone. I think it gets us into all sorts of, you know, an escalatory slide where emotions sort of take over. And I think the dangers, while not definitive, are, uh, you know, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not enough of a, you know, strategist or, or a scholar of this stuff to be able to even a, to assign something like a probability chance. But I think it's it's greater than zero enough to really should scare the shit out of all of us on this. So, you know, we're on the same page there. But, but, but take the next point, which is, which is um, the question of what I was alluding to earlier. You know, we're on the other side of something, whatever it is. I think a, a whole bunch of illusions about the way the world's going. I think we're on the other side now of, of uh, I was glad to hear Shadi talk about American hegemony because I, I think that is the right way to think about it. And your point about the UN vote, I forget who put this on Twitter, but it was a really good one. Uh, did a, you know, as you say, you know, there was that image going around with, you know, all those condemning it, lots of green little dots, like a couple of yellow dots for abstentions and then, you know, very few, uh, you know, um, uh, siding with Russia fully. But especially if you take China and India, uh, I mean, by by world population, uh, it's 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 not like the world is 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 condemning Russia if you take it by a sort of per capita thing. Now, of course, right. you know whatever it's how you slice it. I just think that is striking and it is important and it is one of those things that I think you know in our rush to sort of be righteous about this, like we have the world on our side. Well, it depends how you present the the infographic for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but then let me ask you that then you know so we're facing this this new thing and. For me, looking at it, I, I, you know, I was even saying it earlier, even I think in the run-up to the war, I don't think the kind of guarantees that Putin was saying he wanted. At the same time, uh, for the last several years, it's been pretty clear to me that, that, you know, he doesn't trust us. And I'm not even sure that I would trust us, quite frankly. You signed a piece of paper, we, we signed JCPOA and, and then walked away from it. Why, why would another piece of paper about NATO expansion be worth anything to him? I think that was definitely in his mind. So again, talking about that sort of agency. And I want to get back to that Ukrainian agency on this. On the one hand, you know, I come from the Balkans. I remember the Balkan Wars. Uh, You know, basically those were in Bosnia. Let's not even talk about Kosovo. That comes later. Mm -hmm. But in Bosnia, that was pulled back. That was pulled back by the West. And in the name of peace, stability, and saving lives, the war was ended early. Uh, and then Dayton was negotiated by Richard Holbrook and others by bashing heads together. And you have a peace that has lasted, 
lives were saved. I'm, I'm, you know, I will concede all of that. But you have a very imperfect and fragile peace in a state that basically doesn't work in Bosnia. I work on that stuff. I, I, we don't need to get into like a Bosnia hole here. It's interesting, though, that, that, that at the time, the war could have gone on because, uh, in fact, uh, we were arming the, the Bosniaks, the, the, the Muslims, and the Croats, and they were making gains on the Serbian side. We decided to pull back because there was, you know, nothing, there was, the stakes were a lot lower and we could control the outcome to a certain extent. This is one where we can't really control the outcome. We have people who are committed to continuing the fight. And if, if you just, you know, what I'm, what I'm throwing out there for you is this idea that, you know, that, that sort of hoary old thing, uh, was, it, was it Clausewitz, war, uh, politics by other means? I mean, that is the interesting thing on this, is that Putin's demands are that, that the Ukrainians take the knee, that they make the guarantee. If they're unwilling to do that, the Russians are getting ground down at this point in this war. Um, and I, you know, if there is a, a, an equilibrium to be found on the other side of it, um, how do we, and, and you know, trust I think is, is profoundly broken. I, I, I see it actually a, a perfectly fine case of, and it's not, a, it's not an easy policy choice, and it's not a, uh, um, a, a, uh, uh, a policy choice that doesn't include dangers, but of, in fact, letting the Ukrainians fight for as long as they want to. Not for as long as they can, but for as long as they want to. I feel like this war has, in, if, he, if Zelensky had any illusions about what is possible and how much we have his back, they, they have been shattered. He has bitterly complained that NATO and the West have left him alone several times in the last week and a half. Um, I, I don't see as a, as a, you know, what next, I would just throw out to you, you know, uh, we need to get to the other side of it and we shouldn't necessarily, uh, with, you know, granting that there are many dangers, uh, necessarily uh, be rushing to, uh, close this off on, on Russia's terms at this point. Does that make sense? And is that, is that, uh, completely abhorrent to you? No, I, I, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't, I wouldn't at all say that Russia has even earned the, the, the right to issue and impose a set of demands that unconditionally have to be accepted. They haven't gotten anywhere near the level of military superiority that would enable a country to even think that that's going to happen. And I wouldn't at all suggest that that would even be wise because I do think there are enduring consequences to rewarding what it is that Russia did. You know, you don't want to just hand them everything because to do that is to incentivize this kind of behavior, which you definitely want to avoid doing. What concerns me is it was very predictable and many people predicted that this war was going to be atrocious you know that that given the history of these two countries given the way the russian military fights given kind of everything the 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 willingness of nato to kind of back ukraine but not really that it was very easy to see this turning into something you know on a scale of human suffering like syria or or yemen even and I feel like everything reasonable should have done to to avert that and everything reasonable should be done now to make it stop, which doesn't mean giving Russia everything it wants. I don't think Russia expects everything that it wants, but it seems as though, you know, their list of demands are things that could be worked with. They're not asking for Ukraine itself to be annexed into Russia. They're essentially saying, you know, we want these two regions of eastern Ukraine to be 
independent, which in reality, de facto, they already are. Um, that's the reality. And we want NATO to pledge that it won't enter NATO and, 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 and will be uh, a neutral country. Um, you know, giving Russia everything they want would be saying, okay, Ukraine is yours. You're going to rule it from Kiev and, you know, you're going to install a leader. I don't think the Russians are, I'm not saying they wouldn't want that, but I don't think that that's what they would need in order to stop the war. I just feel like, I mean, I don't know. I, I don't see very much effort diplomatically to stop the war well, on I the mean, part of anybody. And that's, I find, concerning when it comes to the question of motives. To be fair, though, right? I mean, uh, Macron has talked to Putin several times. The Israelis have gone as intermediaries. Lavrov is meeting uh, Kuleba in, in, in Turkey right now. I mean, there are attempts to do this. I guess my, my narrow question to you is, should we stop arming the Ukrainians? I feel like we shouldn't. Uh, that that in in the and the argument is you know politics by other means and you know you know when you say we shouldn't give them everything um, you know how that gets negotiated partly it's being negotiated in lives which is a horrible horrible thing but that's the nature of some of these things it's the nature of war in a lot of ways once once you've crossed that you're here and so you know I'm 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 all for for uh, you know not needlessly wasting lives. And that's a nasty way to put it as well, because what is need? And I, you know, I, I really try and look away from, from the implications of what some of these things are. But, but you have to when you think about this, because what we're talking about is, quite frankly, bigger than individuals. We're talking about, I think, what the world gets shaped at after, I think, something that, that agree was avoidable in a lot of ways. A lot of mistakes were made to get here. But now, looking ahead... Um, you know, this is me making a defense of the sort of current policy, which is, you know, reach out when you can. If the Ukrainians want to keep fighting, let them. Do not get pulled in by public opinion, which is the dangerous point, and I think it's an important one to constantly be focusing on, that we don't trigger something completely unintended out of moral outrage. But nevertheless, uh, this is now an adversarial relationship. It's been adversarial for a very long time. It's openly adversarial. A lot has been severed. Um, and, you know, it's, it's the danger seems to me by, from a lot of critics of what's happening is thinking that there's a way to go back to a status quo ante where it seems to me there will be, there will be you know, a new normal of some sort, um, but it's all up in the air right now. And it's navigating that that's, I think, super fraught. And, and to add, just to add to Demir's point about arming, what if it was plausible that the Ukrainians could actually win? We come to a point in a couple of weeks or a couple of months where the Ukrainians are holding ground, more uh, Western equipment is getting to them, but we're still not doing as much as we possibly could do short of a no-fly zone. So there is this kind of intermediate space where, um, you know, more weapons, more advanced weapons, fighter jets, a lot of this is being debated currently. We'll see where that goes. But to avoid a situation that you mentioned where it's the worst of both worlds, where we give them enough to fight but not enough to win, one way of addressing that is to give them enough to win if that, in fact, is plausible. And it may be in the future. I mean, would you be open to that or would that I, I think still the risks are way too high. You know, I mean, if you look at even what's going on today, you have, you know, this kind of testimony I alluded to earlier from Victoria Newland, and it was kind of ambiguous because Marco Rubio interrupted her before she could really say as much as it seemed like she was going to say about exactly what these programs are. But again, they were clearly, whatever they were, they're they're not benign, you know, 
um, medical lab, she's very worried that, as she put it, they're going to fall into Russian hands and they're doing everything possible to prevent that. And now you have the White House today saying, and Western officials leaking, that they believe that the Russians are going to start using chemical weapons and that the issue that they're raising about Ukraine having a chemical weapons program is designed to enable the Russians to to do a false flag attack of, of using chemical weapons and then claiming that it was Ukraine who did it. So now we're talking about, you know, not like an abstract possibility, but of what seems on the part of like at least Western officials, including the White House, to be a very real possibility of the introduction into this war zone of, you know, chemical and potentially biological weapons, which brings up all sorts of other potential escalatory scenarios given you know that nato is going to perceive that they can't permit that sort of thing on european soil there was pressure already on the united states to go intervene in syria when that happened let alone for that to happen in ukraine so the idea that the ukraine is just going to win means what that putin is just going to kind of slink away and accept defeat and maybe but i could also see a lot of scenarios where you know, Putin decides that that kind of defeat is simply unacceptable from whatever metric he's using to judge geopolitical, political within side Russia, psychologically, in terms of his legacy, in terms of his national security. And, you know, it's very hard to just defeat Russia, given the arsenal that they have of unconventional weapons. So I don't really think it's a good idea to be trifling with thinking about ways to extend the war to, you know, help Ukraine win, because it sounds, you know, if you phrase it that way, it sounds clean, right? Like Ukraine expels the invaders and Russia goes home. I don't think that that's a, at least something we can comfort ourselves into believing is the only or even most likely outcome of, of what you're describing. I, uh, Shadi, you'll get the last question. I just want to say that you know, I, it's it's Shadi's words about about winning. I I I don't have much hope for that, which makes it actually a, a more gruesome policy, quite frankly. Uh, maybe but, not but win, anyway. but defeat. Uh, yeah, so, I mean, yeah, the- we, I mean, look, I, we're running short on time. But I we can go into depth of what defeat means, and I think that's the part that's actually the scariest of this. Is 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 uh, is you know what you were alluding to, Glenn? Is 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 uh, how how does Russia structure a climb down for itself? If for you know, but at the same time, you know, my argument on that is it's all about modulating that because we're doing politics on the battlefield right now, which is seeing how far you'll go. You're absolutely right to point out, and you know, I, I pointed this out in an arguing against a no-fly zone in a different hypothetical. Uh, that, yeah, you know, the beyond conventional, beyond the sort of artillery and even the nasty thermobaric weapons and the rest of that, uh, they've got all sorts of other things that they could do to escalate. Uh, and there are dangers that that would pull us in and, and then escalate the whole thing beyond mm-hmm. it. But uh, that still means that, you know, the escalatory against the Ukrainians alone on there is a means of compelling them to accept the unacceptable, which is really what that, this war ends up being about. What right? is the unacceptable? Oh, well, what what's is- for them unacceptable? Again, you right, know, which I, would I be what? It. Well, it's, it's, put it like that, currently unacceptable, depending on the pain threshold, which is, again, uh, uh, a level of, of submitting. Look, the other part of it is clearly that I, I'm pretty sure that the Ukrainians don't trust the Russians and any guarantees they would get there are not enough. And that's that's the nastiness of this war is actually getting the Ukrainians to uh, give up some level of of uh, 
of of their you know sovereign. I mean, since sovereignty, it's suzerainty, right? I mean, it's basically an ability to have an independent foreign policy. Which, but it's again, also sovereign. But it's also sovereignty because the Russians are demanding demilitarization. Right. You can't. You're not a sovereign nation if you don't actually have a military, or you have a military that's basically defanged and has limits. Well, I mean, on Germany and Japan have been pretty sovereign, right, since the end of World War II, despite being demilitarized. That, that's why I, I I tend to you know why I'm framing this in not moral terms. It's what's acceptable to them. And what if something is unacceptable now, it can be made acceptable later down the line, and that's Putin's calculus. That's the calculus of war, is, is to inflict enough pain to make something that previously seemed unacceptable something that you can sign up for and on. Uh, you know, the danger, of course, is always in war is that you get to total war, and total war in our context is nuclear war, and that's what exactly. needs to be avoided. So that's, exactly. you know, that's all right. I, I, you know, I, all those concerns are there. Um, so, yeah, interesting discussion. Try to, you had one, one last one as we sort of wrap up here. Yeah, I didn't want I didn't want to end this conversation without some reference to the meet a little bit more on how Glenn you're perceiving the media, the media aspect of this because obviously you've been um, a longstanding critic of the mainstream media and how they cover any any number of different topics, um, and you've written about that in some of your recent Substack posts. There's one that I just wanted, and it, I just wanted to kind of. Um, uh, push you on a little bit and just see, see how you're thinking about it now. But you wrote a few, um, maybe a week ago, um, it is as close to a unanimous and dissent-free discourse as anything in memory, which you alluded to earlier. Then you also say Marco Rubio sounds exactly like Bernie Sanders, Lindsey Graham sounds like Nancy Pelosi, every word broadcast on CNN or printed in the New York Times uh, perfectly aligns with the CIA and Pentagon messaging. I think that's interesting because it's also because it gets to this question of whether consensus or unity can ever be good things. I'm generally quite skeptical of consensus because oftentimes it's manufactured or artificial. We as Americans disagree on foundational questions. That said, the rise of an external enemy is one of the things historically that has brought Americans closer together. And I think that's a lot of this is organic and spontaneous. A lot of, as you yourself have said, there is an emotional element here that has pushed a lot of Americans to feel outraged. And there's little to suggest that it's insincere or made up. Right. Yes, they're, they're influenced by media and all of that. But, you know, individual, individual reactions are true to the individual, presumably most of the time. What is so bad about there being a growing consensus around the threat of Russia, uh, the threat that Russia poses not just to Ukraine, but also more broadly? Is that something that's inherently bad? Well, I don't necessarily think consensus on moral questions or even geopolitical ones is inherently bad. There are, though, dangers to it, especially when it becomes kind of morally taboo to question even specific prongs of what's being said where you're perceived to be kind of placing yourself on the other side from that consensus because you don't want a climate where nothing can be questioned or no news can be broadcast or published that seems as though it's undermining the cause that everyone's supporting because it's very easy for the public to begin 
to be misled and propagandized as opposed to informed. That's just the base level concern when every media outlet, every influential mainstream politician is all marching to the same drum. It is very easy to kind of exclude information that actually might call into question some of those claims because it's almost like an act of patriotism to require that that, that information not be uh, submerged. That that That's one concern I have. The other concern I have is, you know, I'll just give you this anecdote because this is really informs how I, how I think about these things all the time. When you guys probably remember, it was 2015, I believe. Yeah, it was 2015 when Canada had two successive terrorist attacks. One, two guys mowed down a couple people, uh, a couple members of the Canadian military in a parking lot. And then two or three days later, there was an attack by a lone gunman on the parliament in Ottawa. And one of the security guards who was 24 years old was killed. And by coincidence, I happened to be in Canada that week. I was doing speeches, including in Ottawa. And the week, it was a week long, you know, kind of national mourning where the 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 24 year old corporal who was killed guarding the parliament was, you know, turned into a martyr. We We, learned everything about his life. We knew his name. We, you know, heard from his grieving relatives. We felt their pain, all of which was totally appropriate. I mean, it was an incredibly tragic thing that that person died, but it struck me that the Canada, the United States, the West had been at war at that point in many places around the world for 14 or 15 years. And I doubt a single Canadian or American could even identify the name of a single victim of the war on terror. So by focusing on some things and not others, even if the focus on what's being highlighted is accurate and legitimate to be emotional about, this kind of misperception gets created, even with good motives, where we feel like the ones who are always the victims are us. We're always the ones targeted with this kind of barbaric and savage violence, and we're not the ones who ever do that simply by making the victims disappear. And that's the other concern I have about this lockstep media coverage is by getting everyone constantly every day to wake up furious and enraged by the civilian casualties Russia is causing, it's very easy to create this warped perception that our government doesn't do that, Western governments don't do that, Russia is this sort of singular evil and as I said before, every example people can cite about why what Russia is doing is inhumane and barbaric down to the specific weapons being used is something that the United States and its allies not occasionally but quite frequently do as well. And I just worry about the the kind of tribalistic uh, sense of elevation that that creates and what might come from it. Okay, well, on that note, that's... Um as good a place as any to end. Um, <laughs> Is it? <laughs> well, <laughs> we'll come back and do a part two, Demir. I know yeah. you have so much to say. No, 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 no. I think I think this uh, this has been great, Glenn. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, I yeah, would love to have you on again. I you know I I I, I have no illusions that that this is ending anytime soon. Uh, even if the 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 immediate uh, killing ends, I think I think we are in a new world, and I think there's there's always going to be plenty to talk to, especially someone like you about. Great having you Yeah, on. no, I really appreciate it. It's so refreshing to be able to have a conversation about very, you know, sensitive and deeply felt topics 
with people you disagree and and have it be you know very very informed very civil very calm and and stable it's just such a different world from doing it on social media um which is why i kick myself every time i try so i really appreciate you creating this venue to do that oh thanks 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 appreciate it good talking to you guys yep bye bye